worship service for McGregor Evangelical Mennonite Church for January 31st. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart, in the council of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise.
Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Lord, we come before you with the least among us on our minds. And by this, God, we pray you let us know who it is that should be on our minds and not who we are absolutely sold is the situation. God, we pray for those who are suffering. We pray for those who don't have anything to stand up. We pray for those who have to contend with voices in their minds telling them that they are nothing. God, we pray that you will show us how to care for these people. God, we pray that you will show us how to support and build up these people. God, we pray that you move in our hearts what needs to be moved so that no longer do we think of people suffering with these inflictions as projects to be addressed and instead come to think of them as human beings the same as I am. Lord, this we pray. God, we want so much to do the right thing, to say the right thing, to be the right thing, but we don't always know how. And because of that, often we end up being more off-putting than anything. But our Lord, we know that you know what it is that we should be doing, that you know what it is that we should be saying, and that you know how it is that we can help those that need help the most. And so, our God, we pray for your wisdom. We pray for your guidance, Lord. We pray that you will be with us as we try to follow you. Our God, this is a request we hold dear to our hearts. And so, this we most certainly pray. And finally, our God, we pray as we work to build your church, that you will help us to build it in a way where it is truly your church. It is truly the home that it is meant to be for all people, and not simply what it is that we have always thought that should look like. Lord, we thank you so very much for all of the ways that you have helped us in this regard when reaching out to your town, when reaching out to your communities, when reaching out to the world that you have made. But God, we still recognize there is far to go. And so, Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray, we pray, we pray that at no point as we try to build up your kingdom do we ever lose sight of you. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah.
Mark 1, verses 21 to 28. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly, come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching, and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Our eyes opened on a Sunday morning. All of us draw ourselves out of our beds. For some of us, it's hard, and for others, infuriatingly easy. We are all in our own homes, make our way to the bathroom, we clean up, get ready, then we stumble back to our closets and get dressed. Then off we go to the kitchen, where we get some coffee, pour a bowl of cornflakes, maybe a handful of raisins, maybe almonds if you have them, with a solid tub's worth of milk. In your mind, you laugh a little bit by just how much the breakfast before you resembles soup more than cereal, and this then sets your mind to wondering what actually is the difference between a soup and a cereal anyway. I don't know about you, but Sunday mornings are a particularly bountiful time for me with exactly this kind of deep thought. But then you finish up, and you place the empty bowl and the coffee mug on the counter next to the sink near a dishwasher that is clearly empty. Back you go to the bathroom to brush your teeth, straighten up your hair, and if it's part of your routine, maybe even put on makeup. While doing so, you catch a glance at either your watch or a clock, and while before you were simply plodding along, suddenly you begin to move like you are fully on fire, ablaze under your pants, because now, once again, you are late for church. Never before. 
At least not since last Sunday. Have you moved as quickly as you do now? Maybe you quickly run out the door at this point, or if you have them, you scoop up your kids, dressing them in whatever clothes are closest to you in their drawers. Their faces are still a little messy, but hey, that's what licking your thumb and rubbing their cheeks is for. Works like magic, and soon they are both disgusted, but also sparklingly clean. And if you have them, maybe you bark at your teenagers who are for some reason still in their rooms. Church is in like 20 minutes, you yell. Slowly, you can hear them stand up and clunk around in what feels like six eternities. They finally come out. Hoodie ripped jeans. You feel yourself about to say something, but you catch it just in time. That's not an argument for now. Soon, you are out the door. Lock clicks. You make it 10 steps before you double back, unlock the door, run in the house, only to emerge another five eternities later with your Bible in hand. If you have them, your teenager at this point is probably infuriatingly laughing at you because in the end, it wasn't them that is the reason that you are out the door as late as you are. You make a mental note at that moment to bring up their clothes when you get home. Minutes later, you arrive at church on time. For you. When it comes to punctuality and Sunday morning worship, consistency is in many ways more important than following the letter of the law because no one remarks about how late or early you may be if that is when you arrive every week. When you open the doors, you are met with singing coming from the sanctuary. You walk to the back of the room and then move to your seat. Two in on the far end of the second row of the freight aisle. As you walk by, some people say hello, but most are too enthralled with the music already playing to notice that you're walking by. It's a new song, and you mouth words as you move to your chair. To the few others who see you, it looks suspiciously like you are just repeating watermelon with different facial expressions to match the mood. No one cares. And soon, after you put your Bible on the seat, you stop and then you notice that someone different is sitting at the end of your row. Neat, you think to yourself. After another song, there is a break on stage, and the singers and musicians sit on tall stools. One stands again and speaks into the microphone an Old Testament passage, and then a short prayer. During this time, out of the corner of your eye, you notice that different person at the end of your row is beginning to squirm a little bit. You think to yourself that they must not be feeling well. Unconsciously, you scooch a little bit farther away. The band stands up again, another three songs this time, including that one that is really growing on you. But right when the bridge of the song hits with what is supposed to be a quiet, emotional refrain, you and the whole congregation can hear pretty clearly that this different person in your row is belting out words that don't quite seem to fit. You hear those around you start to snicker, but soon the song picks up again and things go on. Then another song plays. This time one you really can't stand, and so you make another note to yourself to complain to your friends about it later in the foyer. When everyone sits, the band leaves the stage and takes up their seats in the first row in the left aisle. A reader for the New Testament passage the pastor will be speaking on that Sunday walks up. They trod to the pulpit, clearly nervous about having to speak in front of people, and when they reach their destination, they open their Bibles with a thunk on the wood. Immediately, they pronounce a place name from the chapter wrong. 
Again, no one cares. Then, after a minute, the same different person in your row, clearly squirming again, begins to talk out loud with various levels of volume. Words that are clear, but make no sense together. Everyone starts to look at this person. Some are clearly becoming a bit awkward about it. The reader just speaks louder. Finishing up, they take their seat. Then the pastor steps to the pulpit and begins. Words clearly practiced many times before, and they absolutely nail that opening. But not too many sentences on, that different person at the end of your row stands up and shuffles to the floor in the front of the stage. And they are, at that point, beginning to yell something incomprehensible. And the pastor stops talking. What would you do if this happened? I ask honestly because I don't know, although I have a suspicion. I've actually seen this scenario, uh, less my parental insights, play out before when I was younger. The different person in the road that time was a friend of our family's and even is to this day. When I think of her now, although it has been many years since I last talked to her, I can remember one time when my family visited their home, her and her husband's, and she gave me a Macintosh caramel to eat. And that absolutely blew my mind because those were used for baking desserts in my family, not eating on their own. I, I would have been all of five when this happened. I didn't know her when she was young. I'm told she was a very vibrant person. I think a cheerleader even. Full of life. The schizophrenia, or so I remember it being called, but as often, schizophrenia is a bit of a catch-all. I won't say for certain that's what it was, but either way, I am told that it set in during her early adulthood. And like a lot of people with conditions like hers, sometimes her medication was right on the money, which resulted in families getting together and caramels for little boys, resulting in a woman who was involved in church as best as she was able, playing piano for offertory absolutely spectacularly, almost singularly so. But on that particular Sunday, the medications weren't where they needed to be, which now I know happens. Her husband, who was sitting beside her, quickly moved to whisk her from the sanctuary to the nursery that was empty at the time. I remember her continuing to yell in there, and then that yelling moving to a complete bawling cry for the rest of the service. That went on. I found out about her condition soon after that. I believe my mom told me, probably later that day, then she got her medication sorted out, and that couple still goes to the church to this very day. Uh, they've been a pillar of it for decades. In today's passage, we see Jesus in Capernaum go to a synagogue. He preaches like no one had ever heard before. And then suddenly a man stands up, possessed by demons, we are told. The man tries to out Jesus as the Son of God before Jesus means to be. So Christ tells the demons to be quiet and cast them out of the man, curing him in the process. And all the others that were there were amazed that Jesus had the authority needed to do such a thing. Is that what my pastor should have done from the pulpit that Sunday? I don't think so. While schizophrenia is not fully understood, it is enough to know that it's a physical issue, like breaking a limb. A limb snaps, it can't be used fully until it's treated. If the neurons in your brain have chemistry or formational issues caused by some combination of genetics and environmental factors, it's the same thing, just that it's harder to see and so it gets treated more mystically. 
In Jesus' day, before microscopes and advanced diagnostics and the DSM-5, I think we're up to now, lots of things were thought to be caused by demons, things that we have different explanations for now. After all, this was a time when that was a part of how people understood the world. For the Romans in particular, there was spirits attached to pretty much everything. Rivers, trees, hills, families, you name it. So too when bad things happened. It was understood to be these spirits, these demons running amok. Matters of personal health, certainly this was the situation. By my figuring, Jesus, we read again and again and again, was a great healer. I suspect if he healed someone of a disease that we would know is something else today, but that the writers at that time thought was demons because that's how they understood the world, it would be written down as Jesus expelled demons. The people of that time would understand that way of thinking. It would mean something to them. The person afflicted though, and this is what's important in my mind, the person afflicted is healed regardless of how it's recorded. I'm not trying to say in this that there's no such thing as demons. I mean, we believe in an all-powerful, perfectly good, but unseen God, so it isn't really odd to say that there are evil and unseen demons too. Most of the world, even today, believes they exist and has some experience with them. And even in our town and in our church, many will tell you that they have seen these demons at work firsthand. So that demons exist and are just the worst is a safer bet than our rational minds may want us to think. But for me, reading this story that bears an uncomfortable similarity to something I have experienced, the question that keeps coming to me is the one I asked you. What would you do? If in Jesus' story, sometimes sickness is demons and the treatment is to cast them out, maybe also sometimes sickness can be an illness in the mind. And the treatment is to make sure that person and their husband know that you love them and they have a place with you no matter what. Medication for sure, but for what the church can do. Maybe that is right on the money. Maybe just as much as casting out demons on high brings renown due to the authority it carries. Not forgetting those, and what's more, going out of your way to live in support of those who are suffering with these lifelong afflictions. People who may, on occasion, have instances that would be considered socially awkward, like the one I remember. Maybe that commands authority as well. Come out of him, Jesus commands the demon in this passage. He doesn't just say leave. He doesn't simply expel the demons. Come out of him, he says. There is a person there that Jesus cares for by exercising these spirits. A person who is suffering that Jesus helps. And while I don't doubt reading this passage with the grand spectacle of Jesus' exorcism drives a lot of the word going forth about who Jesus is in the later verses, that Jesus cares about this individual person enough to cast these demons out, this person whose life has clearly been impacted for the worse by them, that isn't something to forget either. As I said before, to this day, that couple serves in the same church. He in leadership and the woman that gave me a caramel when I was a boy still plays piano as she is able to, and she does it beautifully. Some illnesses are not the kind that can be healed instantly. They plague you for a lifetime, and they impact those close to you and those around you as well, but... Even if you suffer in this way, 
you're still a wonderful, valuable person. Just as the person with the affliction in this passage is still a person who is singled out, who is noted, and most importantly of all, is, is seen by God. If Jesus helped that man individually, then we as his followers are called to do the same in like situations. Some afflictions are quick to heal. Some go on for a lifetime and require healing all the while. Healing in the form of inclusion. Healing in the form of community. Healing in the form of recognizing that there will be up days and down days, and possibly even days like the one that I remember happening. Days that need to be met with assurances that they don't change a thing for the love you have for the people living through them. Healing in the form that realizing that there is going to be last minute plans canceled and suddenly having to take steps back when things become too much. And that is all right. Healing in the form of doing what needs to be done to make sure those most afflicted and impacted by these ongoing illnesses not only feel that they have a place in church, but are given everything that they need to thrive in it. So I ask you again, what would you do in this situation? For my suspicion, I don't think anything you do in those moments matters half as much as what you do from then on in. Suffered for my pardon, and 
Today's benediction comes from the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Go now and serve our God.